welcome. First of all, welcome. This is Unsolicited Perspectives. I'm Bruce Anthony, your host, here to lead the conversation in important events and topics that are shaping today's society. Join the conversation by following us wherever you get your audio podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel to get our video podcast. Rate, review, like, comment, share. Share with your friends, share with your family, hell, even share with your enemies. On today's episode, I'm going to be responding back to some comments about what me and my sister said about country music. We'll be talking more about black facts, specifically World War II. And we're going to be talking about a messy situation in a marriage that I got from a Reddit page. But that's enough of the intro. Let's get to the show. You know, I was going to film this episode yesterday, and I'm not going to tell you which day I'm filming this episode, but it's fairly recent to the release. But I was going to film this episode yesterday, and I was angry. And I said, let me stop. Let me take a day to myself and not record an angry episode as I'm trying to explain something to people who are ignorant. And once again, ignorant in and of itself is not a negative comment. Ignorant is just not knowing, right? So some people are ignorant and then some people are willfully ignorant. The people that are willfully ignorant are the ones that really agitate me. But those people that are ignorant, I'm always willing to have a conversation and try to teach something or explain my point of view from a perspective as a black man. And This particular topic that I'm going to get into is regarding the comment that me and my sister made on our last sibling happy hour in which we stated that black people created country music. Now, there's a lot of pushback from some people out there in the social media landscape. Now, I understand there are trolls out there. I really don't get agitated with trolls. I actually find it funny. If you don't have trolls, I guess you're not doing something successful. So the fact that I have backlash from this podcast lets me know that I'm doing something successful. I'm touching a nerve. Whether you like it or not, what I say has some form of impact out there in in the the world, okay? Which is humbling and also a little little self-gratification there that, that comes from that as well. But trolls. So I'm used to getting hurtful, hateful comments that I don't allow a lot of people to see. I deal with it on my own. My sister doesn't even really see them. And I don't know if that's necessarily healthy for my psyche to be bombarded with some of these negative messages. But I will say that there are a large number of positive messages would like more positive messages on the comments on the YouTube page because um, that would kind of help. But I get direct comments through emails or, you know, DMs and things of that nature of how much people really enjoy the show, uh, really respect my perspective on things, really feel like they're getting uh, insight and enlightenment to certain things that they either never thought about or didn't think about it in the way in which I present them. So I'm, I'm extremely, extremely grateful for all of that. But once again, social media touched a nerve. And, and I will say, being a black man that is very outspoken and does not run away from any topic, I agitate people sometimes. Uh, majority of them tend to be white males, but not just males, females, and not just white, 
everybody because I'm going to speak my truth, whether you like it or not. And I'm going to come with receipts, right? I don't just say anything flippantly. I, I, I'm a researcher at heart. I'm a historian at heart. There is a background of research that is done before I do the shows. Do I turn on the, do I turn on the mic and camera and just go? No, that I do do those on uh, my talking straight ish episodes and after hours uncensored that you can find on our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash unsolicited perspectives. Those shows are strictly we're turning on the cameras and we're going and we can say anything crazy. Those shows aren't really prepared. But these shows that I do, the sibling happy hours, the shows that I do to my own, the interviews that I do, everything is very thoughtfully prepared. And I got great experience to prepare uh, from from my college, right? It was secondary education, studying to be a teacher, so creating lesson plans, uh, and then being a, a history major. You know how many papers I wrote my senior year between the the two semesters. I wrote six or seven thirty page papers between the two semesters, and that was just one year. That's not including the junior, sophomore, freshman year, second sophomore year. There was there was a five year program there, uh, but that's neither here nor there. So there, I thoroughly research the things that I talk about, and I'm not, once again, I'm not saying things flippantly. If I tell you, if I say to you, Black people created country music, know that if you say, no, they didn't, where are you getting this information from? I'm going to come back with receipts. So that's what I'm going to do in just a minute. To show that I'm not one of those people who can't self-reflect, I want to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you two stories, as a matter of fact. The year is 1992. Dr. Dre and the Chronic had just come out. And ain't nothing but a G thing drops. What's crazy is I'm 11, 12 years old. My dad is 33, 34 years old. At the time, I just thought he was the oldest man in the world outside of my grandfather and my uncles. My grandfathers and my uncles. But 33 is really, really young. I mean, that's 10 years younger than what I am right now. And I still listen to to hip hop. But he, I I was listening to Dr. Dre, Ain't Nothing But A G Thing, and he comes in the room rapping it. He knows the song. And he was like, yeah, you know, that's Parliament Funkadelic. And I'm like, who? He said, yeah, 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 that's Parliament Funkadelic. I was like, no, that's Dr. Dre. He's like, yeah, yeah, I get that. But the samples are from Parliament Funkadelic. Who is that? He puts his head down because my father, being the musician, uh, bona fide musician, can play multiple instruments, can sing, can can do music by ear. Incredible, incredible musician. Says, yeah, no, this is, let me introduce you to this. So he brings out the record, Parliament Funkadelic, and he finds a song. I can't remember exactly what the song was. And come to find out, the majority of that album, which later Dr. Dre credits, right, gives a lot of credit to P-Funk and Parliament Funkadelic. I find out that a lot of the album that I'm listening to was sampled in our songs from Dr. Dre. Had no idea. How would I? The music was before I was born. So unless somebody introduced it to me, I wouldn't know about it. Fast forward to, I don't know, 2004, Little John and the Eastside Boys had just released the album. Uh, me and my sister talked about it. I think Lovers and Friends is definitely on that album. I think that's where that album came from. Uh, that record came from that album. And another song on there was Play No Games. 
And that song was done by Lil John Eastside Boys and Fat Joe. I'm a huge, huge Fat Joe fan. And so I'm playing in the car. My brother is me, my, my mom, it's me, my mom, and dad, brother, and sister. We're all in the car. I don't know where we're going. We're going somewhere. And I played a song. And this is it was bold of me because I'm very respectful of my parents. I don't cuss. I'm a grown, I'm a grown ass man. I don't cuss around my parents. The most cussing that my parents hear from me is really through the show. But I, for some strange reason, I turn on this song and, and we're listening to it. And me and my brother and sister are rocking to it. My mom is appalled. Of course she is. And then my dad yells out, that ain't nothing but some dookie stick. And me, my brother and sister fall out in laughter. Talking about what the hell are you talking about, dad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a song. That's, that's a song, dookie stick. <laughs> we laughed, right? But then I did a little bit of research and there was a song called Dookie Stick in the 70s. That was a hit. And it was literally the sample that Little John took. Once again, it was something that I wasn't familiar with. I was ignorant of it. And my dad introduced me to it. I told those stories to say, when I learned that the music that I was listening to was a remix and a sample of older music, I didn't decide to turn my eye at it just because my favorite artists had borrowed something and made it their own. I said, oh, okay, well, they took something and they remixed it and made it their own, but originally it was this. And I acknowledged that as a 12-year-old kid, as a 24-year-old young man, I acknowledge these things. So for all those people that said, there's no way in hell that black people created country music, the information that I'm about to give you right now will fully prove that black people created country music. And despite the fact that it is dominated by white people as of right now, that the country music awards is almost as big as the Grammys and that white people identity is tied up in the country music, that does not mean that one, still can't enjoy country music just because you're not the creator of it. And it's not exactly the same, but country music, as we, as we listen to it right now, as Beyonce drops albums, is an evolution of music that was started by black people. And one of the first things that I could do to point this out is by introducing a simple instrument called the banjo. Now, the banjo is a key instrument in country music. And guess where it originated from? It originated in Africa. It was brought to America by enslaved Africans and became a central part of slave music and culture in the South. The instrument was later standardized, appropriated, and spread to white audiences through minstrel shows and blackface shows. Now, we've had the conversation about what's menstrual and blackface, right? I told you all the story of Uncle Tom, the book, the Uncle Tom, and how the book, how the character Uncle Tom is actually this really great hero that became bastardized because the South didn't want this black man to be a hero and then changed it so the character became this menstrual blackface, which is essentially making fun of black people, making the Uncle Tom character stupid and a buffoon to which now we portray, we look at the term Uncle Tom as something negative. It was not that. In the original incarnation of Uncle Tom, it was positive. So here we have the banjo and 
it's a major instrument in this music that is being created, which is the genesis of country music, and it became bastardized once again through minstrel and blackface shows. It also, this form of music, also hugely informed, quote unquote, what is called hillbilly music. And hillbilly music was later rebranded as country music. So you see the evolution. The banjo is introduced. Uh, a banjo is used in a lot of African music and, and, and customs and rhythms and songs. This is the introduction of country music. The evolution of it becomes hillbilly music and then rebranded as country music. But I'm not done. I'm not done. Many of the songs of what is of what early quote unquote hillbilly artists played inherited and adopted black sources like slave spirituals, field songs, religious hymns, or quite simply just works from professional black song uh, writers. Yeah. So once again, we go from hillbilly music to later being rebranded as country music. The original quote unquote hillbilly music was all themes from black culture, black southern culture. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about hillbilly music. So they use certain techniques like call and response and blurring of the note, which are essential in African music traditions and later became prominent in country music. But hillbilly music specifically is also known as country music or Appalachian music. And I told you guys a couple of shows back about the Melungeons who come from Appalachia, which were a combination of black people, Native Americans, indigenous folks, and poor white people that came together in the Appalachian mountains and created this entirely different community from anything else. Right. Once again, borrowing on the African customs that's been spread out throughout the South. All right. We've already talked about the banjos, but some of the themes in hillbilly music. Now we're going from gone are the days of the minstrel shows and the blackface, and we're fully steeped in hillbilly music. But once again, is a direct descendant of African music using the banjo. Because you're still using the banjo and hillbilly music, all right? And, and hillbilly music is a, a negative term. I, I'm using it, like I said, when I said quote unquote, I'm using it specifically to make a point here because there's a genesis of a rebranding of what was then known as hillbilly music that is now rebranded re as country music. It all comes from the same name, for same thing. The name just changed, right? Okay. So some of the themes in hillbilly music often reflects the experiences and values of people living in rural areas is known for its down to earth and homey appeal. Hmm. Does that not sound like country music to you? And, and, and I understand rural areas now, especially in the flyover states, are predominantly dominated by white people, black people have always been in rural areas. And a lot of these rural customs that are in these flyover states still originated from the South and still were influenced by African culture. All right, so that's the evolution of what was hillbilly music and how it, involved, how it evolved in, 
influenced other genres, but more specifically, what is now known as modern country music. So uh, I, I can't draw any clearer picture of how we go from Black people created this music. It evolved over pff, hundreds of years to become what is now known as country music. And, and we're seeing a lot of this when I talk about the Black facts. Like we talk about the inventor, Marie Brown, of the home security system. The inventor of the ring camera gets, gets the majority of the credit because he took something that was already created and connected it through Wi-Fi, right? But he is not the originator of home security. But if I told you it's a black woman that actually created that, you'd be like, how? How in the world did she create that? One, we're really inventive people, always have been. And, and, and two, the reason why we get overshadowed is because people are trying to take away the history. I'm not going to get into my deep dive about how there's a connection of what's going on right now with book banning, trying to take away DEI, trying to take away African-American history and, and history uh, and not teach it to the kids because some kids feel guilty. I'm not going to go into all that, but a little bit I am. Because when you do those type of things, you miss out on the truth of the evolution of how things became what they are today. And this was just an example of how country music was literally started by black people going all the way back to Africa and the banjo. But despite the deep roots and contributions of black artists like Leslie Riddle and T. Tote Payne, who actually taught Hank Williams, without the contributions of these people, without the recognizing the contributions and the commercial decisions by white industry executive led to basically the exclusion of black history and country music. It becomes very difficult to sell something to the white audiences if they realize that they are not the ones who actually created it. There was a whole film genre that saved the music industry, uh, saved the movie industry, and they were black exploitation films. Uh, it all started with Sweet Sweetback's badass song, and then later with movies like Shaft, Superfly, and The Mac, where movie studios realized, oh, there's a huge untapped market of consumers. They're black people. We've never made movies for black people. And movie studios were going out of business in the 70s. The whole movie industry was going to collapse until they tapped into this market. And they realized that black audiences want movies that they can identify with. They made movies that black audience can identify with. The movie companies made their money back. But the point I'm trying to make is, is that they weren't catering to black audiences. Why? Well, white people are the majority. Uh, even still in this country, contrary to, to this great replacement theory that they're trying to, to push out. And that they thought that that was the core audience, that they were the ones that only had disposable income to, to promote to. So if you're a white executive and you realize that, hey, you know, this movie was started by black folks. And then 
became hillbilly music, which black folks were still a part of. And some of our major country singers learned from black folks. Ah, we can't really tell them that. Let's just go with Hank Williams and let's ride this into the sunset and make this a popular genre to white audiences. And we're not even going to address that history. And, and it's not just country music. What if I told you that black people also started rock music? Yeah, 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 yeah. So rock music originated in the United States in the late 1940s and the early 50s. Its immediate origins lay in the mixing together of various black music genres of the time, including rhythm and blues and gospel music. Rock and roll was influenced by deep South black music genre called the blues. It started out as rhythm and blues. Many of the early rock and roll bands, including the Beatles, the Animals, the Rolling Stones, the Who, uh, and etc., began to imitate 1950s American rock and roll rhythm and blues, rural blues, and urban blues. All essentially black genres of music. Some of the earlier black pioneers, of course, Lil Richard, Ike Turner, Bo Diddley, uh, Chuck Berry, who played a crucial role in shaping the genre and, and, and taught many of the artists that later propelled rock and roll music like the Beatles. Right. And let's not forget Jimi Hendrix, one of the greatest guitarists ever, who went on to teach people like Prince and Lenny Kravitz and Slash of Guns N' Roses, like the influence of black people and rock and roll is bananas, but they don't get the recognition. Right. And so all I'm trying to say is this. And I know this was a long winded way of saying it, but all I'm trying to say is this. I've been taking this month to point out the black influence on American culture through inventions and how we've basically produced music in this country. If you put country, you put rock and roll, put R&B, you put hip hop, which is rap, right? What other genres of music really is gospel? That That's black music as well. So when me and my sister say black people created what is American music? Those are the examples I'm trying to give to you. Not trying. Those are the examples I gave to you. Now, if you were ignorant before, like I was when my dad explained to me about how P-Funk influenced Dr. Dre and the Chronic album and how Dookie Stick influenced Play No Games, right? He gave me that information. I took it. Did some research, found out it was true, and said, hey, that doesn't take away from what Dr. Dre and what Lil John and the Eastside Boys did, but I got to give recognition to the creators of what they remixed. So, since I've given you this information, you are no longer ignorant. You don't believe me? Google is your friend. Google it yourself. But if you refuse to believe the facts that I presented to you, you're not ignorant. You're willfully ignorant. And that I really don't have any time for. You can stay stupid for all you want to. I'm trying to evolve as a person and get smarter. So if I can learn something from people. Give me all the information you got. I'm going to take it in, decipher it, go do my own research and come up with my own opinion based on facts, not based on what I want to believe 
but based on facts. Hey there, podcast listeners. It's Bruce Anthony here, and welcome to another episode of Unsolicited Perspectives. Today, I want to talk to you about something that's been on my mind lately, the importance of staying hydrated and taking care of ourselves. Whether it's prioritizing our health and wellness, or gearing up for festival seasons, or just gearing up for whatever season or time of year, there's one brand that's been my go-to for all things hydration, Liquid IV. Speaking of health and wellness, let's dive into how Liquid IV can fuel your well-being. Imagine starting your day off right, feeling refreshed and energized. Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier is the missing piece in your daily routine. With just one stick, you get five essential vitamins and two times faster hydration than water alone. It's perfect for those early mornings, pre-workout boosts, moments when you're just feeling run down, or even after a late night or long flights. I absolutely love how convenient Liquid IV is. The packaging makes it easy to bring with me wherever I go. And let me tell you, it's become vital daily part of my routine. The flavors, (laughs) let me tell you something, they're incredible. From refreshing sea berry and strawberry lemonade to classics like lemon lime and watermelon, there's a flavor for every preference. It's like a burst of hydration with a hint of deliciousness. Picture this. One stick of liquid IV mixed in 16 ounces of water, hydrating you two times faster and more efficient than water alone. And with 12 mouth water and flavors, you'll never get bored with your hydration routine. Plus, liquid IV is packed with five essential vitamins, B3, B5, B6, B12, and of course, vitamin C. It's also made with premium ingredients, non-GMO, free of gluten, dairy, and soy. This is hydration at its finest, but it doesn't stop there. Liquid IV believes that access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. That's why they partner with leading organizations finding innovative solutions to help communities protect both their water and their futures. It's incredible to know that Liquid IV has already donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. They truly walk the talk. Get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code unsolicited at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code unsolicited at liquidiv.com. Remember, folks, taking care of ourselves should always be a priority. So why wait? Head over to liquidiv.com, pick your favorite flavors, and experience hydration like never before. Stay refreshed, stay hydrated and keep rocking those unsolicited perspectives. All right, we're not done talking about black people. Not at all. We're going to talk about Frederick McKinney Jones. And why is he important? Well, this was a black man who was also an inventor, an entrepreneur, and an engineer who made significant contributions to the field of refrigeration technology, you know, refrigerators, freezers, things of that nature. He made the advancements of that technology. How did he do that? He is best known for his mobile refrigeration technology, which eliminated the far less effective use of ice and salt to preserve foods for transportation. This greatly extended the distance over which food can be successfully delivered. He, in the 1930s, He designed and patented a portable air cooling device for trucks transporting food food, and later adapted this portable air cooling device to fit trains and aquatic vehicles. 
this dude before before him, we was just using ice and salt to preserve food. Food was going bad. People had to, had the bubble guts eating bad food that had gone, you know, gone bad with the meat and eggs and things of that nature, eating spoiled milk, all types of eating spoiled food. And here is Frederick McKinney Jones coming up with refrigeration. Don't get recognized for this. Everybody, everybody uses a refrigerator. Everybody uses a freezer. Right. This is him. Beforehand, you know how you use a cooler? You know, you put a lot of ice in the cooler to keep the stuff cold. That's what people was doing before, before mobile refrigeration. But it's not just that. It's not just his creation of or his advancements in technology as far as refrigeration is concerned. It's how it helped us during World War II. So his units were very helpful in transporting food, blood, and medical supplies around the world. And for the U.S. and military allies, for the U.S. and military allies to preserve blood, medicine, and food to be used in army hospitals and on open battlefields. That's right. I don't think what gets discussed enough, and I know I'm going to do a detour. You thought I was just going to talk about my man, Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones! No, I'm doing a detour. When you thought I was just going to talk about inventions, I'm going to talk about actually how little recognition black soldiers get for their help in World War II. I get really agitated when people try to describe the 1950s in America as this pristine, great time. Look, let me tell you, the 1950s have the greatest PR firm that ever existed because there's this idea that America was so great in the 1950s after World War II and that that generation the greatest generation, I put that in quotes, right? Just like I did Hillbilly in the first segment, that the greatest generation is the greatest generation that's ever been produced in this country. I'm going to dig into the greatest generation, but first I want to talk about what black soldiers faced during World War II. And there was, and, and, and it's not just World War II. Black soldiers were in World War I, in the Civil War, they never get credit for all the defense that we did to make this country the most powerful nation. But black soldiers faced significant discrimination and segregation during World War II, not just home, but also abroad. Despite black peoples, black men, because remember, it was only men going off to war, despite the, despite the willingness of black men to serve their country. Black soldiers were often relegated to segregated divisions and combat support roles. The military was just as uh, segregated as the Deep South was. Black soldiers faced discrimination in every branch of the armed forces. They often were degraded and treated as lower class citizens. Many of the bases and training facilities were located in the South. And regardless of the region, they were separate. They were separate blood banks, hospitals, or wards, medical staff, barracks, recreational facilities, all that stuff was separate for black soldiers and lower, lower in class to black soldiers. Black soldiers were routinely slurred and harassed by white soldiers and local white residents, despite the fact that they were trying to defend their country. 
The military often regulated black soldiers to less desirable roles, such as cooks, mechanics, road builders, ditch diggers, supply unloaders, slave labor. That's what I just did, manual labor. This is what they were relegated to. Look, this is the crazy part. And, and for those people who are like, that's not true. Once again, Google is your friend. Use critical thinking skills, Google it, look at the sources, get all the information, and then come to an educated uh, opinion about these things. But it can't really truly be an opinion because these are facts. There were instances where imprisoned Nazi combatants, Nazis, received preferential treatment over black troops. Let me repeat that so that you hear it. Captured Nazi soldiers were treated sometimes better than the black soldiers. They were treated better than the people that are trying to fight alongside you to defend this country. Greatest generation, right? Greatest generation. Despite these challenges, there were black soldiers served in distinction and made significant contributions for the war. More than one million black men and women, so there was a few women out there, just a few, served in every branch of the U.S. armed forces during World War II. Despite facing discrimination and often being relegated to these supporting roles, black ser soldiers served a variety of capacities, including logistics, helping to ferry supplies to allied troops all across Europe. Let's not forget Doris Miller, portrayed by Cuba Gooden Jr. in the movie Pearl Harbor, who was the first national hero of World War II and became the first African-American to be awarded the Navy Cross because he was the crewman that was aboard the West Virginia in Pearl, when Pearl Harbor was attacked. So y'all remember the movie Pearl Harbor? And Cuba Gooden Jr.'s character, once again, I, can, I can't remember what his character was. It was a cook and a mechanic because that's what black soldiers were. He jumped into the machine gun and started shooting at the planes that were coming to bomb them. Showing that, hey, man, if you give us a shot, we can contribute. But military segregated. This is all record. Right. Everything that I'm saying, these are all facts. This is not my opinion. I didn't live during that time. I don't I didn't see it firsthand. These there are books. There are articles. There are movies that give you all of this information. Don't believe me. Do the Google search yourself. But these are facts. Now, let me get to this so-called greatest generation. Now, the greatest generation was was coined by Tom Brokaw. And, and basically, the greatest generation is commonly referred to those Americans who were born in the 1900s through the 1920s. So they were adults during World War II, right? They, what I will give them credit for is that they lived through not only the Great Depression, but World War I and World War II. So if you want to say they were some of the most they were one of the most resilient generations. I might not argue with you too much about that, right? I mean, Great Depression and two world wars. I would say that there's a generation that just went through September 11th 
And then also the the war on terror, which is terror technically still going, the Iraqi war and Afghanistan and all that stuff, right? For 20 years. Uh, and there was also a whole generation that didn't even get to volunteer. They were forced into Vietnam. And then you also have the uh, feminist music movement, civil rights movement. That actually, to me, is the greatest generation. But let's just focus on why they say that this generation born in 1900s and 1920s is the greatest generation, right? Okay, I will give them the fact that they went through the Great Depression and two world wars. But then they are described as driven, patriotic, and team players. Okay, well, I just examined how they're not team players. And oh, let's not forget that segregation was a real thing during this time, right? So how much team players were they? How driven were they? I don't know. I mean, I guess there is there is something to be said to pull yourself out of the Great Depression. I will say that the economy of war helped us out of the Great Depression, but you still had to go through it. They're the parents of baby boomers and who I actually believe, and I know there's a knock on boomers right now, but boomers were the adults that were really fighting the real fights to get social justice in this country and to get as close to it as you could possibly get to equality. We're still not there yet, but they fought the fights. So yeah, like I said, originated Tom Brokaw kind of kind of labeled them the greatest generation. And, and, and I have a friend who's in her sixties who said, yeah, that's the greatest generation because they all went off to war. Okay. Let's talk about World War II and let's talk about our involvement, America's involvement in World War II. America delayed getting into World War II. And that's because they preached a philosophy of isolationism. This meant that many Americans believed that the conflict in Europe was not their concern and that the U.S. should focus on its own defense and avoid involvement in, in foreign wars. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like what a lot of people in particular parties are saying about Ukraine and Gaza. I'm just saying, does that not sound familiar? Public opinion is that, hey, we had just done a world war 20 years ago. We don't really want to be in another one. And I can kind of understand that. Okay. You just fought one fight and you're not trying to really fight no heavy fight again. Uh, also, there were some political debates with some of the, the some Americans uh, questioning joining the war before before they did because they believed that the, that the U.S. should be isolated. And there were other people who were actually like, "No, nah, we got to jump in this war to fight fascism." And then there were even people. And once again, these are all facts. If you read books, you read articles about why America hesitated to enter into World War II. You can find all this information. Google. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, Google is your friend. There were also Americans who had just come to the point that after Germany had made so many advances in Europe, that they were just too strong and didn't want that smoke. Yes, there were people here in this country that just didn't want the smoke with Germany because Germany was just taking over all of Europe. And it wasn't until Pearl Harbor was attacked on December 7th, 1941, uh, Japan, the Japanese did a surprise attack at Pearl Harbor that we decided to enter the war. So 
a lot of uh, the majority of men enlisted into the war and this is considered patriotic and and it is right it is patriotic to fight for your country i will never ever attack anybody that has blood sweat tears fought for this country i am a strong supporter of our armed forces i'm a strong supporter of the military i'm an even stronger supporter of the veterans i think we need to do a much better job at taking care of those people who have ptsd have mental emotional and physical pains dismemberment all that stuff from going into defending us but with that being said to say that america was noble and patriotic for joining the armed forces to go fight in this war i question not the patriotism i question the the hero comment because i'm sorry for anybody out there if somebody walks up to you and punches you in the face are you just going to turn and walk away and continue on with your day or are you going to punch them back or do something back in retaliation now if you decide that you want to turn and walk away or run away because you don't want that smoke i'm not here to judge anybody i don't know how hard that person hit you or who that person was. If Mike Tyson walked, now, even if Mike Tyson walked up to me and punched me in the face, I'm going to take that L, but I'm going to defend myself. That's just pride. So was it that this, the, the men that enlisted, was it that they were heroic, heroic or prideful? Because heroic would have been the U.S. entering the war when Germany and the Nazis were collecting Jewish people and putting them in concentration camps, killing them, marching through Poland. That would have been the time to enter the war. And don't, I mean, yeah, the U.S. gave some arms. You know, we're real good at that. We're real good at not putting any real skin in the game. We're real good with, you know, I'll give you some guns and some military stuff to help you out with your problem. But, you know, that's your problem. But, you know, I'll give you a little bit to help you out. That's what America was doing. And it wasn't until we got punched in the face that we decided to enter the war. And this is a generation that we call the greatest generation. Never mind that, but when the war ended and all those soldiers came back because who was working in the factories? The women. Who kept this country afloat as far as the infrastructure that was running in this country? The men were off to fight in the war. It was the women that were working in the factories. It were the women that was taking care of the land. It was the women. And when those men came back, those women were, were, women were relegated back to those old woman customs, being a housewife, being the mother, staying in the kitchen. So despite the fact that this is labeled the greatest generation, it didn't stop it from being misogynistic, racist, discriminative towards different people, different races, and women. This led to black people who had gotten horribly treated 
in their service to their country during World War II, coming back saying, hey, man, no, I didn't go fight for this country. Go overseas and see different things. This is why a lot of black people moved to Paris, right? Because they went, they, they were in Paris and they was like, wait a minute, hold up. Not every place is like the deep South America or not even the deep South America because Chicago was segregated. New York was segregated. Not technically by the laws. They didn't have Jim Crow laws, but they did, but they didn't, but they did. Like redlining and banking and loans. And they created basically these areas that only people, minorities could live. And just it wasn't Jim Crow. It just wasn't written on the store counter when you walked in whites only, but it was the same thing. And so these black soldiers and these women that had done the work of defending this country, these men came back from fighting the war, soldiers, patriotic soldiers, and the women were relegated back to the kitchen and black folks were relegated back to, well, weren't relegated. They were still stuck in second class citizenship. And this led to the rise of the feminist movement and the civil rights movement. It was the baby boomers. That's the greatest generation to me. Because they're the ones who actually fought for everybody having rights. Not the greatest generation. The greatest generation saw atrocities that was happening in another land and said, that's not my problem. That's no different than you're seeing somebody get mugged or getting beaten or maybe getting raped in the street and you walk right past it and you say, that's not my problem. That's what they did. And the only time that they stood up and the only time that you would react if you were walking past that person being mugged, being robbed, being raped, is if that mugger, robber, raper turned around and tried to do the same thing to you. Then you defend yourself. That's not heroic. That's pride. They were tough because they made it through the Great Depression and two world wars. But to to label them the greatest generation when they came back and started doing the same shit that they were doing beforehand. I'm sorry. America was not great in the 1950s. It was fucking horrible if you were anybody of color. Or women. And that's just the plain truth. And anybody who wants to dispute that, you just don't want to look at the real history of America. You want to look at the great PR creation of America. And if we can call out our loved ones. And we can say, I love my mother, I love my father, I love my grandmother, I love my grandmother, but here are their flaws. They are not perfect. Why wouldn't you do the same thing for your country? Why is it so hard for you to look at? the negative and atrocities that America has done. I've given you the information. It is up to you. You are no longer ignorant. If you refuse this information, you are willfully ignorant and I can't do nothing for you. Godspeed and your willful ignorance. And they say ignorance is bliss. You're just going to remain real blissful, I guess. All right. For this last message, I can't I read it and I saved it and I can't find the word for word written message on Reddit that I read. But I remember the logistics of the 
message. So I'm going to paraphrase uh, what this young woman said uh, in the message and then discuss it. So it's a woman that has been married, uh, a young woman, late 30s, so young to me, has been married to her husband for seven years. Before she got married, her mom told her, hey, look, you need a getaway account. Basically an account that has money in it. Anytime something happens, you can get away. So she creates this getaway account. And through the seven years, she stashes money in the account. Here's some important details to some of the things that she was saying. She says she's a stay-at-home wife. They don't have any kids. She's a stay-at-home wife, right? She doesn't have a job. He has a job. Sometimes he's worked two jobs. Uh, He used to make really good income, so it was okay uh, for her to stay at home. He got into a really bad accident at work where he couldn't work anymore. They tried suing because of the accident and lost the lawsuit. So not only was he not able to work, they did not win the lawsuit. So money was no longer available. They had run out of a lot of money. He did what he could. She went out and got a little bit of a job till he got back on his feet. Uh, She says in her own words, he did work two jobs and drove Uber to get them back up to where they were when she stopped working. She had lost her job that she had gotten during that hard time. She had stopped working, um, but he was doing everything that they can to get back on their feet. Throughout this entire process, she was still stacking money in that getaway account. He finds out about the account. They've been married for seven years. He finds out about the account. And understandably so, I think, He's a little upset. He becomes even more upset when he finds out that there is about 20, I can't remember the exact number, but it's like 25 to 50 grand in this getaway account. And he is like, yo, you saw that I was breaking my back while you lost your job trying to get us back on our feet, get us out of this debt that we was in. And you were sitting on this pile of cash. And she's like, that's what my mom told me to do. Any case, anytime something happens, you know what I'm saying? I'm going to need some getaway money. So she was basically asking the Reddit community, was she wrong? And I don't comment on Reddit, Reddit community sites. It could be a cesspool. It could be worse. It's absolutely worse than YouTube. Uh, so I did not comment on that. I decided I was going to bring it to my show because it's anonymous, right? I, they only post the message. It's anonymous. I don't know who they are. I just know what she posted and going to give my critique to it. So she asked, was she a jerk or an a-hole, right? I already said the F word on this episode, so I'm not going to continue to cuss. Uh, was she an a-hole? And my response to that is, yes. <laughs> like, there's no question. You absolutely are. Now, I will say this. I was married. This is what we decided to do before we were even married. When we decided to move in together, we said we have our own accounts, but we're going to create a joint account and our joint bills. We're going to total them all up 
Uh, and it was like, it was like what our rent was, mortgage was, whether our cell phones, cable, all that stuff, you know, everything that was joint bills, utilities, all that stuff, joint bills, vacations, times when we would go out to dinner, we, we like estimated like what we would spend on these things. And we said, this is a number that each of us have to put in each month. And that takes care of our joint expenses. Now, anything that, that you have that's yours that's yours, but this is what you need to put into the joint account for our joint expenses. And we maintain that through, uh, through, through the short marriage, through the marriage. And I would say our issues were never over finances. I would never let finances come between us. Finances could always be worked out. I made a little bit more money than she did. I made a lot more money than she did. She was in school. She was working. She was in school. She was putting in money, right? She had more worth than I did at that particular time. But but I had more cash than, than she did. But like we never wanted for anything. Bills always got paid. Nobody was ever stressed out. If finances were stressed one way or the other between us, the other person picked up the slack. That's just what couples do in a marriage. Had I found out that she wasn't working, I'm paying all the bills and she's stashing away money that she's not providing, right? Because this woman was not working the majority of the marriage. The only time this woman from this Reddit post was actually working was when he couldn't do the full-time stuff that he used to be able to do. So she pitched in and then she lost her job. And in no part in that message did she talk about uh, I had a really tough time finding another job. She didn't specify if she did try to find another job. This dude is out here breaking his back, working two jobs, driving Ubers. And there, there are other, mm, I forgot about this. There were other aspects of it to make her an a-hole. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, I forgot some very important details that I just now remembered. And I'm not making this up. This was absolutely in the message. I swear to you guys. He, when they were going through the tough times and he was working two jobs and driving an Uber, he went to her and he said, hey, this is actually killing me. Is there a way that we can scale back, right? Like, obviously right now we can't afford this house. We can't afford the things that, we, that we're doing. We need to scale back. She said, no, this is why she wasn't working. She said, no, that she had done a lot of work to build that home. And that she didn't want to reduce her lifestyle in any way. Now, me personally, if I was married to her right then and there, I'm leaving. Because she's not looking out for us. She's looking out for her. And if you're in a relationship and that person is only looking out for themselves, you need to get out of the situation. I'm not saying people can't make their own decisions, right? But when you're in a partnership, you need to talk to that other person, not to get validation for whatever decision that you make, but you need to include them into your thought process and let them know, hey, this is what's going on. This is the decisions I'm going to be making about this, but I want you to know ahead of time. I think that's fair. That's what a partnership is. If I find out, and I've been in relationships. My last serious relationship was like this, where the person that I was dealing with was 
all about themselves. They thought about themselves first. And don't get me wrong, you need to put yourself first, right? But didn't include me in decisions that she was making about her life. I'm not going to tell her no, yay or nay about a decision in her life. But if we're together and your decision can impact me, you probably should give me a little heads up before you make said decision. That's all I'm saying is that when your decisions impact other people, you should give them a little heads up. And so he's going to her, killing himself, two jobs, driving Uber. Hey, can we, can we scale back? And she says, no. All the while she has anywhere from $25,000 to $50,000 in the secret getaway account that she's not sharing. She's not pitching in when they're in a tough situation, completely by herself. She's completely about herself. I would have ditched her this, as soon as I as soon as I found out about that account, because you was over here having me literally kill myself. You staying in the house, chilling, and you're not helping. And you got all this money. Fact of the matter is that money is my money because I was the one that was working. That is my money. You stole my money from me because that wasn't going that the money that I make is supposed to be going towards us or me, not solely to you. Not solely to you, it's for us or me. Your money is your money, my money is my money, but our money is our money, meaning that some of my money is for us. How are you gonna be taking how you're not gonna be working and you taking money that that I'm making and you're not you're not using it for us? You're not even using it for me, you're using it for you. I don't know. I consider that stealing. But but women out there, if you're listening to this, give me your feedback, right? I don't think that there's anything wrong for a woman having a getaway account. I don't think there's anything wrong for a man having a getaway account. There that that's problematic if you're in a relationship and you're already thinking about a getaway account. Now I understand that you need to protect yourself in a situation. But it also is kind of like, hey, are you really in it? Because you're either all the way in it or you're not. And if you're thinking in the back of your head, I need to prepare for in case this goes sideways. I mean, you always want to prepare. But that was what she had was overprepared. So I don't know, women, women and men, you know, shoot, shoot me a comment. Let me know what you think. I think that she was in the wrong. That's just my personal opinion. I think there was nothing. I think there was nothing about what she did that was right. Other other than the fact that there is nothing wrong with having your own account. And if it was money that that she was working and putting in, I, well, it's your money, right? It's, what you do with your money is, 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 is your thing. I mean, what you do with my money, that's not for us. I got a real problem with that. And that's grounds for me to divorce you because I can't trust you. And if I can't trust you, ain't no reason for me to be with you. And that's just me. And that's actually talking straight-ish, actually, uh, without any cussing. <laughs> that's that's what that is. But on that note, I want to thank all of y'all for listening and watching. And until next time, as always, I'll holla. Whew. That was a hell of a show. Thank you for rocking with us here on Unsolicited Perspectives with Bruce Anthony. Now, before you go, don't forget to follow, subscribe, 
like, comment, and share our podcast wherever you're listening or watching it to it. Pass it along to your friends. If you enjoy it, that means the people that you rock with will enjoy it also. So share the wealth, share the knowledge, share the noise. And for all those people that say, well, I don't have a YouTube. If you have a Gmail account, you have a YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can actually watch our video podcast. But the real party is on our Patreon page, After Hours Uncensored and Talking Straight-ish. After Hours Uncensored is another show with my sister. And once again, the key word there is Uncensored. Those are exclusively on our Patreon page. Jump onto our website at unsolicitedperspective.com for all things us. That's where you can get all of our audio, video, our blogs, and even buy our merch. And if you're really feeling genuine and want to help us out, you can donate on our donations page. Donations go strictly to improving our software and hardware so we can keep giving you guys good content that you can clearly listen to and that you can clearly see. So any donation would be appreciated. Most importantly, I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you for listening and watching and supporting us. And I'll catch you next time. Audi 5000. Peace.